is good to be with you this morning. My, my name is uh, Jesse, and I am so thankful to, to know your pastor. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. I went to seminary with him uh, a couple of years back. It's, it keeps getting longer and longer away. And a couple of years ago, I remember talking with him uh, about what God was calling him uh, to do. He was at Sage Mine at the time. And uh, God was calling him to move out to start a new venture be a part of that, to have those conversations with him, and to see it from a distance for a, for a while, and then to be here with you guys, in some ways is a little bit surreal for me, because it's like seeing a dream come to reality with, without ever having seen all of the individual pieces. I saw from a distance, I get the email updates, um, but more than that, just from conversations, I hadn't got to be with y'all uh, until today, and so I'm thankful uh, for that opportunity. I'm a, I'm a pastor in the Clear Lake area, that Bay Area First Baptist Church. And uh, I'm looking forward this morning to, to being in the Word with you. I want to just mention for everybody, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons that we as Christians and we as people start to even think about doing crazy things like leaving uh, big, established, uh, well-paying churches to go out into places where you, there may be something there, um, but it's going to take time and energy and effort. Uh, we think through that and say, well, what would cause someone to do that? And we look at different stories of missionaries around the world, and we say, what would cause someone to give up the circumstance that they're in in the United States, perhaps uh, a circumstance of prosperity, uh, a place in which they have all of their needs met readily, and, and far beyond that, they have everything perhaps that they could want, or they have access to most of those things they could want. What in the world would cause a person who is sitting in such a situation to say, or to, uh, to do something totally different, like to give all of that up and go somewhere else, do something else, and carry a message ultimately a message out of redemption and restoration. What would cause them uh, to do that? And, and I want to tell you, and I know that Russell has been telling you this, that it's because we have a story uh, to tell. And it's not just a story, it's, it's the story. At the end of the day, it's the only story that, that really even matters. And every other story gets its significance on its alignment with, with this story. Y'all been walking through that story together as, as a gathering uh, of looking at the scriptures, of understanding that, that God created everything. He didn't just create it, He created everything good. And this is a, the basic uh, functional parts of the story that uh, we as Christians believe, that God created everything and He created it good. Well, the problem with that is that we look around the world and we say that everything is not good, right? I'm not alone in that, right? You see that. That everything we look around the world, it's, it's not good. So, so how can it be that God created everything good, but, but that's not the experience uh, that we have in our lives? Well, the issue there is something that we refer to as, as the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents decided that uh, they wanted to rebel against God, that they wanted to be God instead of to serve God. Well, God created them created us to be in a right relationship with him, which means we understand who he is, understand who we are, 
and then act appropriate, appropriately in that understanding. In other words, appropriately in that relationship that he's the king. And we recognize him as the king and, and we were put here to be his ambassadors in the world, to be, we were created in his image for that purpose, but we re rebelled against that. But even in the consequences for the rebellion, immediately, you know, God created everything good and we rejected him and it's what's called the fall at that point. But even there in the consequences of the fall, going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says something like this, that there's going to be somebody who comes in the future. There's going to be somebody, he will crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent is the one who led our first parents into temptation, who led us into sin. They're saying somebody is going to come who's going to make all of these things right. There's going to be a guy who, the serpent's going to bite him on the heel, but he's going to crush the serpent on the head. Now, I don't think this takes a lot of explaining, but would you rather be bitten on the heel or crushed on the head? Right? Uh, there's a clear difference between these two things. It says the serpent is going to bite him on the heel, um, but, but that person, whoever that person is who is coming, is going to crush the serpent. That's, that's right there, right after the fall. And immediately we begin the story, the story of rescue and reconciliation restoration. In other words, all things being put back together like they should. Being in the situation of uh, being a pastor, I come into a contact with a lot of people in a lot of varying circumstances. And a lot of times people are sitting in my office and they say things like, I, I don't get it. If God is so good, why does this hurt so bad? Why do I have you fill in the blank? And it can be many, many things of these painful experiences in my life. I mean, if you are worshiping the God you say you're worshiping, they're saying to me, if, 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 I'm, if I'm worshiping that God, then why in the world does it hurt so bad sometimes? And, and my answer to them, because that's the answer that comes from the scriptures, because the world is broken. It's not what it should be. It's broken. But the amazing, unbelievable truth that, that started right after the fall is this. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's not going to be that way. Um, but there's a story. From all the way from Genesis chapter 3 uh, to the ending of the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, you get the story that's coming. You get foreshadowing. You get beautiful pictures of someone who's coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent, um, even while himself gets bitten on the heel. And then we get into Matthew chapter 1, and we start being introduced to the person himself. His name is Jesus. Jesus is not simply a name that we bring up because it's a popular name or something uh, that we've heard a lot. But, but listen, Jesus is the pivotal central figure of history. If you understand the story that I'm telling you, and it's coming from the pages of Scripture, you see the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself, as the person who all things are leading up to, then his life, and then all things are looking back to until he comes again. See, that's the story. And our responsibility, and, and that's, that's, too, uh, that's too negative a word, our joy, our 
to learn the story, to live in the story, and to help others see it and live in it. Because only there can you find satisfaction. This is what I love about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, this story that God had created everything, that we fell and we're in rebellion against God, but that Jesus came and Jesus paid the debt for our sins so that we could be back in a right relation with God. One thing, I, I love many things about that, but I never have to apologize to that, about that to people. When I'm talking about Jesus to people, I, I don't talk about it in terms of, and here's all the things you have to give up. Because that's not what it's about. You see, I don't look at my marriage and say, what are all the things I have to give up to be married? I've been married for 11 years. I've got four kids. Um, and I can look at that and I can say, well, I have these four kids. So in order to have four kids, you have to give up a lot of free time. You have to give up a lot of extra money. You have to give up. And I can fill up all of these categories of things that I have to give up because of these kids. But then if you ask me, is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. There's no question whether or not it's worth it. So I wouldn't even, when I talk to you about my children, relate to you in a way of, yeah, this is all the things that I give up, but I have kids. You, you see, relationships are different than that. I don't look at my wife and say, well, these are all the things. I, I can't date any other women. Man. Better not say that. No, no, I'm not giving those things up. Those things are welcome sacrifices because of the better thing that I have. Of a woman that I love dearly, who loves me, who loves Jesus well, who is an amazing mother to my children. You see, you're, you're, I'm trading up. And when we come to the gospel, we're always trading up. So when we start by saying these are the things you're going to lose, we act a little bit as if those things are a little bit better. And the fact of the matter is none of them are even close in comparison with the beauty of what God has for us in the gospel. I want to give you everything that you could ever imagine and hope for and satisfy you. And I want to tell you that everything else that you've been looking to try to satisfy those internal cravings and desires will leave you dry. But I know the way. And your pastor knows the way. And believers know the way to find it. It's not an easy way. I've been to the top of, I go, I like to backpack and mountain climb and, and do things like that. I was in the top of a mountain one time. Um, I take my student ministry up there, student pastor at the time. And he got to the very top, the cliff. But it wasn't, it wasn't large. It was only like 500 feet um, down from the top where we were, which isn't very high. But and I looked down, and I looked at the students and said, all right, guys, there's two ways down. There's this way, or there's that way. That way, this is the way that I'm going. It's going to be more difficult. It's going to be more challenging. And you're going to have to climb over rocks. You're going to have to climb under things. You're going to have to go through a stream at the bottom, and it's 40 degrees, right? It's really, really cold. Or it'll take you about 10 seconds to get back to camp. It's right there. Well, they could have gone that way, but as I told them again, I promise you will not like the condition in which you reach the camp. There is no chance of you reaching the camp in the condition that you would like to. If you go with me, it's going to be hard. 
It's going to take time. But when you get there, you will say, it was worth it. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. There's, there's no thing in life, nothing in life, that is worth it. And you don't have to work for it. You see that? So I'm not saying you work for gaining the gospel, but I am saying that pursuing God in the gospel, in his story, is worth it no matter what seemingly significant, but, but as you go along, you learn it's insignificant. No matter what, you have to give up because what you're gaining is so much more valuable. I want to talk to you about the gospel today. Specifically, we're going to be looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you picked up a book, uh, a Bible book, if you picked up a Bible on your way in, it's on page 966 um, in those scriptures. And we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because really, Paul in this place, Paul is the writer of this letter uh, to the church of Corinth. Paul in this place is answering the question that I asked just a few minutes ago. Why would you go? Why would you do all these crazy things uh, for the sake of the gospel? If you read Paul's resume, one thing that's been messing me up lately is this statement that he makes that five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. In other words, this guy got beat. Um, you remember the story of Jesus getting beaten? Well, basically that was similar to the description Paul had five times for going out for the sake of the God. Why? What would compel anyone to do such a thing? And I love this right here in verse 14. So chapter 5, starting with verse 14, it says this, For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Here's what we've concluded and we've changed our actions. That one, and this one that he's talking about is Jesus, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Let me make a little sense of that, hopefully. You remember I talked about in Genesis, we rebelled against God. We decided we didn't want to follow God, we wanted to be God. Well, that's rebellion, that's treason. And treason, just then as it is today, is a capital offense. Sin, going against God, is a capital offense. In other words, it deserves death. And our God is a just God. He's a, he's a good judge. So sin always is punished appropriately. So the dangerous, the terrible thing, the bad news is that because I'm a sinner, I deserve capital punishment because I rebelled against God. But the good news and and the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. That's really bad news. So the good news is really good is this. That there has been someone who has already paid my debt. And his name is Jesus. So if you think about it that way, you reread this and it says, And he died for all that those, excuse me, let me go back. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. In other words, all have paid their debt through Christ. Christ's death has paid the debt for believers. 
and he died for all, and those who might no longer live for themselves, but live for him, who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus' death and resurrection provides a chance. Not just a chance. It provides hope. It provides life. I try to say it this way. The one who did not deserve to die, died. So the ones who include me, who do deserve death as an appropriate punishment for my sin, we get life. And not just kind of, sort of, little bit of life. Everlasting, never-ending, perfect life. That's the promise of the gospel. Life that on this earth is profoundly different, but then in perfection extends forever. To eternity. What else are you looking for? In the gospel, we have all things that we could ever hope and imagine, um, all there and together. And it says here, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer with thus. We don't use thus that much, right? What does this say? This is saying that no longer do we look at people on the outward appearance, on their status, on their ethnicity, on their dollars and cents, on their position in life, on anything. Fill in the blank. Outward appearance, and that's what it means by the flesh. We no longer look at them. In this context, they were thinking about the Jews. There was external things that made them a Jew. And he said that, that doesn't matter anymore. Why? Why is that the case? We no longer look because we know that once that Christ, one person died for all. Once for all. And he says here, verse 17, this is going to be kind of the money verse that we're going to be in together. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, let me stop right there with the anyone. When we're thinking through the story of God from his good creation to the fall, the rescue, restoration, we need to always understand so very clearly that anyone and everyone is a part of the story. There's no one excluded for any reason whatsoever. It says if anyone is in Christ, we're going to talk about the in Christ in just a moment, but anyone. The gospel is the most inclusive thing in the universe. There's no one who is outside of the reach of the redemption of, of what God is doing in the world. So what is he doing? Well, he continues on here. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right, so that, that brings us to a couple of conclusions. That there is something about this in Christ verbiage that changes us and makes us something Else. So in Christ, when, when I read that passage, it reminds me of another passage in the scriptures in John chapter 15, when Jesus himself is talking to his disciples and he says something along the lines of, you must abide in me. You must remain. You must stay connected to me at all times. And he uses the imagery of a vine. talks about trunk of a vine and then the branches. The branches are the long things that grow up in the trunk 
is the thing that connects to the ground, by which everything gets its sustenance and its ability uh, to live. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever messed around with vines. I live about 30 miles from here in Leak City, and we have this evil concoction called trumpeter vines on the side of our house. Anybody know what trumpeter vines are? Nobody. I'm going to have to tell you about this. Uh, I've got these vines that they they literally grow like an inch a day during the spring. It's ridiculous. And for about three days a year, they make these beautiful flowers. And I'm supposed to believe that they're worthwhile in keeping and growing everywhere all over my house because of these flowers that grow uh, for three days a year. And for the last five years that I've been in my house, I've been trying to get rid of them. And if you cut them, they grow faster. And they grow in more directions because from that cut, they start going in five different directions. So no matter what you do, no matter how low it is, it continues to come. So there's only one option here. You've got to uh, dig it out because it's going to continue to grow out. But I was thinking about this when I was thinking about what I've been saying today, of the reality that once I cut, like yesterday I was in the, the roses, I've got in the wood roses in the back that I'm trying to save from the advance of the trumpeter. So I just went down to the base and I cut it right there. And I just walked away. I'm not going to worry about trying to pull all of those vines out of the roses because I'm going to end up bleeding everywhere um, from the effort. But instead I just cut it and I said I'll see in the next couple of days where the effects of that cut, they'll, they'll be pretty obvious. So I went out this morning and last night, and sure enough, all of the places that came from that stump were, were starting to die, were starting to shrivel up, and it was easy for me to identify what they were and to pull them right out. And I was thinking about this in light of this. This in Christ is a connection with God in such a way that we realize that 100% of our Lifeblood, our sustenance, our uh, everything that we hope in and everything that we need, we're, we're getting it from, from him. Jesus says this, stay connected to me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Our father is the vine dresser, the one who takes care of it. But, but I'm the vine, so you've got to stay connected to me. So what is, what is this in Christ? Someone who is in Christ is someone who has recognized their rebellion against a holy God, has surrendered, who's, they've given up and they said, I don't want to be in rebellion against you. I recognize that Jesus died on the cross so that I can have a way to be in right relationship with you. And I, I give you my messed up, broken down life in exchange for your everlasting life. And, and in that moment, the Bible says in uh, amazing ways that our sin is forgiven and that we are connected to the vine. And we have the responsibility to continue to maintain um, a relationship with God, not because we're preserving our salvation. Let me be very, very clear here. A salvation is just like adoption. We have a lot of families in our church who, who have and are adopted. And the amazing thing about adoption is it's done deal. Right? Adopted children are more connected to the adopted parents than my kids are to me. Let me explain. 
It is illegal to disinherit an adopted child. Did you know that? I can disinherit all four of mine because they're biological kids. But when you adopt a child, there's, there's nothing that you can do about separating yourself from that child. It's a beautiful picture of the same way in the Roman society in which um, the Bible was written, the New Testament. Um, that world, when it says things like adopted in the New Testament, it has that in mind. That in this adoption, there is a permanence of the relationship. But just like any relationship, a relationship can grow sour. Not to the point of disconnection, not to the point where we lose our salvation, but the point where that relationship is no longer what it should be. And when I say that we have a responsibility to stay connected to God, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about in our relationship with Him. It's as clear as mud. So let me, let me roll here. In Christ, um, in, we're in verse 17. It says, therefore, those who are in Christ, uh, he is a new creation. So he's not what he was. He's something else. Let's get some descriptive words about that next. The old has passed away, and, beneath, and, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. Salvation. Repentance, new life, power, everything, will, it, it, it comes from a singular source. It's not us collaborating with God, it's us receiving from God. So, I mean, hopefully make this applicable for you. Uh, you're not adding anything to this story, you're just living in it. See the difference there? You're just finding the place that God has for you to play in this story. Getting in that spot and living in it. Living in it well in light of what he has said in his word. So we pick up the pages of scripture and we read, we read through it and we see how is it that I am to live? And how do I uh, stay connected to Jesus? Well, we see scriptures, we see prayer, we see all kinds of various things. But we understand that, that we, are, we have been given all of this by God. I didn't earn anything that I have. You, if you're a believer, you didn't earn belief. It was a free gift given to you by Jesus on the cross. And it says here that, that all of this is from God. The old has passed away and the new has come. All of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So, when you hear the word reconcile, what do you think about? This is not just work. What do you think about? When you hear the word reconcile, anybody? Reconciled marriage. Reconciled marriage. That's the first thing that I think about when I hear it. My, my title is a pastor of discipleship and family. So, part of our world is, is family. So, I hear the word reconcile and I think of marriage. We talk about reconciling children to their parents. Kids who maybe in their teenage years and, and they're rebellious and there's huge distance between parents and uh, kids. And, and what we want to do is reconcile. We want to bring them back. See, reconcile primarily is a relationship term. It's a term to reflect the fact that 
while these people should be connected, they are not. We look at families sometimes and say that this is just not right. It's not right for sons and fathers to be that disconnected. There needs to be a reconciliation. There needs to be a coming together inside of that relationship. This is what this passage says about relationships. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us. So God reconciled us to himself. And he did something else. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only did he do something for us, but he gave us something to do in this world. I see that in your church you talk a lot about restoration. And one of the parts of one of the most beautiful parts of what God has called us to do in this ministry of reconciliation is to restore relationships. And the most important relationship is the relationship between people and God. You see, all other relationships are secondary to that. The Bible says, love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you look at that and understand that well, you see that my relationship with God, if it's right and I'm doing that, if I love him, love the Lord my God with my heart, my soul, and my mind, my strength, guess what? My relationship with my wife is pretty good. Why? Because if I love God, I'm going to obey him. And as I obey him, I read his word and it says, love my wife as Christ loves the church. My relationship with my friends is pretty good because I, I get a relationship in which Jesus says, serve people. Be a humble servant and lead other people back to me. Our relationships start getting better. See, all relationships come secondarily from the main relationship with God. And if that main relationship with God is strong, those secondary relationships will begin uh, to strengthen. It says that we have been reconciled to God, but we've also been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, so God was bringing all things back to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Explaining that a little bit better. In verse 20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? They go to another place, and they represent another country or another king to that place or that country. So what that person or that country thinks of that king or that country comes from how the ambassador lives, who the ambassador is, how he relates, how he connects with other people. And we have been called to be ambassadors for Jesus. We have been reconciled to the Father. You get that? If we have confessed Jesus, understanding our sin has separated us from God, and we confess him as our Lord and Savior. When that happens, we're reconciled. We're made right with God. But that's not it. That's not the end of the game. It's not sit around now and wait for Christ to come back. It's now your life has been bought with a price for a purpose. And the purpose is this. You're an ambassador to this world. That everyone who is around you, for many of them, their only opportunity to come in contact with Jesus, with, to come in contact with the story, to come in contact with the gospel, is you and your life. 
you're not just about being reconciled to God. You're about being reconciled for the purpose of seeing others reconciled to God. And this shouldn't be a forced thing. This should be more like how excited I get about college football. Let me explain. I never took an evangelism course in college football, by the way. And I probably, you probably haven't either. You, you never took a course on how to encourage other people to watch the thing or to do the thing that you love to do. Why? Because talking about what you love is just a natural outflow of loving something. Every year we start the season, the college football season, people, they see that what I talk about changes a little bit. What I'm thinking about, what I'm, and, and hopefully it's way, way, way below Jesus. Otherwise, I've got an idol in my life. But what we need to do uh, in all of those is recognize the fact that when you love something, it becomes an overflow of your life for other people to realize that you love that. And sometimes, guess what? They want to jump on board because they get excited for you as well. See, this ministry of reconciliation is not a forced thing. It's a natural outflow of being reconciled to God. You get in a right relationship with God. You say, I want everybody to have this. Not only do I want everybody to have this, but I will do whatever it takes for other people to have this. So bring it full circle to what he said at the beginning of, in, uh, of the passage. He said, the love of Christ controls us because we are, we have concluded this. This is the thing that they have concluded, that, that we have been reconciled to God if we're believers. If you're not a believer, you can be reconciled to God. You can have a right relationship with him. Again, I know there's nothing that we would rather talk to you about than having a reconciled relationship with Jesus. But if you already have that reconciled relationship with God, then your job, the reason why you're breathing right now is because God has given you a ministry of reconciliation to go out into this city and to go out into this world and do whatever it takes for other people to see that Christ, your relationship with Christ, is more valuable than anything else. So they start seeing that and saying, well, maybe there's some validity here. Maybe there's something real. Maybe there's something that I need. And you will be given the opportunity to speak truth into their life about that reconciliation. As ambassadors, we sit with an opportunity to live and die for the sake of the gospel. I've been reading through um, a book, I've been teaching through a book called Don't Waste Your Life on Wednesday Night. I hope some of you have read it. If you haven't, you should. I recommend it to you. Uh, and part of that talks about people who are willing to make God glorious. In other words, to show God how he really is in such a way that other people see it and are overwhelmed. Here's an example that he gives that I think is so pertinent to what we're saying. We have the responsibility as ambassadors of being like a telescope for God. Right? Not a microscope. We're not making something infinitely small bigger than it should be. We're doing the telescope thing. We're making something unbelievably large come into vision for us so that we can make some sense out of it. It's like a telescope. I don't know if you've ever had a telescope. 
But once you have, first of all, it's hard to find anything, but once you do find something, uh, it, it, it's amazing because with your naked eye, you can't see that. It's incredibly complex. And depending on the magnification of the telescope, you see more and more grandeur because the thing itself is greater than you can imagine. So in that same way, as ambassadors of Jesus, as people of the ministry of reconciliation, we have the responsibility of being telescopes for the world. That when they see us, they see through us a God who is infinitely valuable, infinitely worth it, and who they can be reconciled back to. They can become part of that story once again. And in living in that story, they will have, we will have everything we could possibly ever want. Will it be hard at times? Yes. Welcome to life. Life is hard at times. Will it be worth it? Absolutely. So here's my challenge uh, to you, and then I'm, I'm going to pray. If you're not reconciled to God, if you have any question about whether or not you are reconciled to God, don't leave this place without some understanding of what that looks like and where you are. Because I want you to live in that story. If you are reconciled already, and you know you've got a good relationship with the Father, it's not perfect, but it's tracking upward, it's walking in a good direction, then my challenge to you, my challenge to me and one in that category is that increasingly we realize that we've been given a ministry of self-sacrifice for the soul, for the glory of God and the reconciliation of everybody around us. You see someone, you know someone in your workplace, you know someone in the places that you frequent who does not have a connection with God, who has not been reconciled to the Father. You do what it takes. So at the end of the day, when Christ, as I believe he will, says, how did you steward? How, how did you steward this ministry, this job, this responsibility that I gave you? You can say, I did everything I knew to do. I want to be able to say that. See, I'm not responsible for results because it said all this from God. I can't do anything to change anyone's eternal destiny. I'm just not that good. And the reality is none of us are. God does that. What I can do is be exactly what he called me to be, which is an ambassador. Someone who can represent him and serve other people like he serves, give to other people like he gives, be willing to tell them the story over and over in the most loving and compelling way that I can possibly imagine, praying that God would do something.